Our second reading this morning is uh, Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 32 through 37. Hear the word of God. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, the opportunity and the privilege to gather here with brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray that uh, you would continue to uh, draw us closer to yourself. I pray that you would bind our hearts up uh, during time this time of distress and trouble. I pray that uh, our hearts would uh, be open to one another, that our ears would be attentive uh, to what we are saying to one another during this time. Uh, I pray as well that you would continue to uh, sustain all of those who are not able to come out to worship this day. I pray that the, the Holy Spirit would uh, would bridge that gap and, and uh, that we would indeed be able to worship together as one church and as one people uh, this day. Lord, we also pray for uh, our neighborhoods and our city. We pray for our country. We ask uh, that peace and calm would uh, reign throughout the land. We pray that uh, during this time of national conversation uh, that we would do a good job of moving uh, forward in this country and making things better rather than making things worse. We pray that you would be honored and glorified uh, by our uh, attitudes of our hearts, by the uh, speech of our lips, and by the actions of our hands. And we pray uh, that we might do all of these things to your glory. For you alone are worthy. Amen. Amen. Um, so <clears throat> there are not many of us here uh, this morning, but it is. It is really kind of nice to see those of you uh, who are here. Those of you who've been here during the interim, the, there was a lot of like equipment here, so it was even more isolating, and it was it was just a very it was a strange experience. So I think it's been what thirteen weeks since we've had our doors open. It may be another thirteen weeks before everyone feels comfortable uh, and is able to come back to church. One of the things that this quarantine has convinced me of is the importance of human contact, face-to-face human contact. We were meant to live with other people. I mean, even the introverts have been suffering during this time of, of isolation. And there's no good way for the church to be the church in quarantine, we have done our best these past uh, three months. We've limped along with minimal contacts and, and copious help from Internet technology. But it's not been the same, and it's not been as good. If you were Satan and you were hell-bent on crippling the church, which, of course, is what Satan is always hell-bent on, then you really couldn't come up with a better strategy 
than a permanent quarantine in which everyone is locked into their own homes. I mean, there is a reason, after all, that Scripture says, let us not neglect meeting together. It's really important for Christians to be with other Christians, worshiping God together, sharing our lives together. So I'm glad to see the brave souls uh, who are here this morning, and I am glad that none of our people have gotten sick with the COVID-19 virus thus far. Few of us have been infected, probably more than we know, but the Lord has protected us. May he continue to protect us from this virus and from every other hazard that there is out there in the big bad world that could keep us from getting together. I want to say a special word of thanks to the team that has kept things going during the shutdown. In the church office, Rich Good, Stephen Clark, Joan Clover, and Elizabeth Rosardo never stopped working. The church office was just as busy as ever. It smelled of bleach for the last 13 weeks, thanks to Joan, who's been vigilant and killing germs, but otherwise not much changed. Working remotely with our children and our youth program, Naomi Trask, Becca Jo Yorko, Susan Kaler, and Beth Ann Clark have used the mighty power of the internet and personal visits and telephone calls to keep people together and keep people moving forward. And on Sunday mornings here in the sanctuary, our core team has been Josh Bruce and Christine Boney and Joan Clover and John Haynes and Bernie McGorry. They were supported with cameo appearances by Dan Bramer, Christy Bruce, Rosie Bruce, Seth Fluter, Abby Lentine, Doug Nolan, and Mofe Odenay. They've been very helpful. And then, of course, there's been the parking lot crew. Every week there's been a crowd out in the parking lot. There probably are some people out there today sitting in their cars listening to the service on the radio It has been really encouraging for all of us who've been in the sanctuary to be able to walk out those doors and to see other faces, to see brothers and sisters in Christ that that, uh, have been worshiping uh, out there in the parking lot, talking and milling around and uh, visiting with each other or on a blanket out in the lawn. It's been wonderful. It's important for us to enjoy the Sabbath and to enjoy each other's company. These past three months have been hard. They have been filled with uncertainty and isolation and anxiety because of the COVID-19 virus and because of the quarantine. And these past two weeks have been brutal, filled with heartbreak and frustration and anger and exhaustion because of the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the rioting in many cities, including Philadelphia. Both of these crises The COVID-19 crisis and the George Floyd crisis have had many of us at each other's throats in a way that has not at all been helpful or constructive, which brings me to another crisis straight out of the pit of hell. If you were hell-bent, as Satan is, on crippling the church, then you really couldn't come up with a better strategy for crippling the church than finger-pointing politics and intemperate speech on social media. Honestly, I have seen people, our people, who have been angrier with other people's political ideas about COVID than they have been with the COVID virus itself. I've seen people, our people, who have been more upset with other people's politics about race than they have been about people dying in the streets and our cities burning. 
And both of these crises, the COVID-19 crisis and the George Floyd crisis, there have been many of us at each other's throats in a way that has thrown fuel on the fire rather than having been helpful in solving our common problems that we face as a church and as a community. And I think we need to ask why. And I think the answer to that question is going to have something to do with where our faith and our politics reside in our brains. Which one has the upper hand? Which one is in control of the show? Is our faith brain or our politics brain piloting the ship of our lives? Are our aspirations for civil society based on our understanding of who God is, or is our understanding of who God is based on our aspirations for civil society? Do we build our nation and our cities based on what God has revealed about His nature, or do we build our God based upon our vision of ourselves? It all boils down to worship or idolatry. Will we worship God, or will we bow down to an idol? Now, if I were a real theologian, I could probably show you that every single sin issue ultimately boils down to that question. Do we worship God or do we worship an idol? All sin at bottom is a form of idolatry. So what's the connection between idolatry and the present crises that we have been facing? What does idolatry have to do with COVID-19 and with 500 years of racial history in North America? Well, every crisis, every bump in the road, no matter how big or small, has a way of revealing the true state of our hearts. It's easy to be good people when everything's going well. But when there's trouble, when there's stress, that's when my character is revealed. In the Bible, this is called testing. Stress is a test. The COVID-19 quarantine has been very stressful. Will that drive us together or will it drive us apart? Will we find joy at home or will we be at each other's throats? The stressor reveals what's been going on all the time inside of our hearts. The stress is the test. Racism is stressful. And when racism turns to protest and protest turns to riot, will that stress drive us together or will it drive us apart? Will we be the ones taking advantage of the chaos to steal and destroy? Or will we be the ones to stick around and clean up and help people out? The stressors reveal what's been going on in our heart all along. The stress is the test. Now here's the basic truth of human life. There will always be trouble of one sort or another. There will always be stress. There will always be dangers and injustice and destruction and pain. I don't want to minimize those things, but I don't want us to, but I do want us to admit that there's always something going on. And if we think that our time is somehow different from other times, then we really just need to read more history. There has been real heartache and pain these past two weeks, these past three months. This world is always going to give us something to be stressed about. It always has and it always will. But while the world is always throwing stuff at us, our response to that stuff can either be constructive or destructive. It can either be fleshly or spiritual. It can either be worldly or godly. We have a choice. Stress is the test. 
During the COVID-19 shutdown and during the aftermath of the death of George Floyd, we have seen unifying, constructive, selfless behavior. And we've also seen the opposite. We can choose what kind of people we want to be. Stress will be the test. And the first place that that choice between whether we're going to be constructive or destructive, the first place that that choice works out is how we treat one another during times of stress. Will we attack the common problem or will we attack each other? Will we listen to the concerns of others or will we demand to be heard? Will we help others get ahead and celebrate their success or will we hold them back and resent them when they do well? We are a mixed-race congregation, as we should be, because if you draw a 10-mile radius around this church building, we live in a mixed-race community. And a healthy church will reflect the mission field where it's been located. And as a mixed-race congregation trying to serve a mixed-race community, we are under a special obligation to try to understand people whose experiences in this life are not the same as our own. Last Sunday, I said that nowadays white folks and black folks live in the same neighborhoods. We go to the same schools, we work in the same offices, and sometimes, more rarely, we worship in the same churches. But that doesn't mean we live in the same world. And that's because the world at large doesn't treat black children the same way it treats white children. It doesn't treat young black men the same way it treats young white men. Now, I am not saying that every single white person treats every single black person with disrespect or disregard. I think some of you heard that last Sunday. I'm not saying that at all, nor did I say that. What I am saying is that the experience of our black children is different from the experience of our white children, even if they live next door to each other. And I'm saying that Christians have an obligation to appreciate the point of view and the experiences of other members of the body of Christ, of other members of our community. And we have an obligation to listen to and to take seriously what people around us are saying about how the world looks to them. Yes, of course, we also have a moral obligation to treat all people fairly and justly. In that sense, we are to treat people of all races the same way. In that sense, we are called to be colored blind. But we also have a moral obligation to not be unaware of the lived experiences of people who are different from us. Different not in the sight of God, but different in the sight of the world. Perhaps what we need most from one another in this life is to be understood. Because when we feel heard and understood, we also feel loved and cared for. In our reading this morning from the Acts of the Apostles, we hear about the early church being of one heart and soul. It's a great phrase, well, of one heart and one soul, may that be us. The early church was a group of people who were of one heart and one soul. And one of the ways that this showed itself was that they even shared their property, their money, their wealth. 
Oh, in case you didn't notice, after our three months of COVID detour through Paul's letter to the Philippians, we're back in the Acts of the Apostles where we left off back in March. Just to remind you of where we were, ten days after Jesus ascends into heaven, there are about 120 of his followers gathered, probably hiding in an upper room in Jerusalem. Maybe that was the upper room where the Last Supper took place. And while they're there, the Holy Spirit comes upon them like a wind, like tongues of fire, and they rush out into the streets of Jerusalem, which were always packed with people from all around the world, and they begin to proclaim the news about Jesus, that he was raised from the dead, and people from many countries hear the gospel in their own language. Now the skeptics at the time said, oh, these people are drunk. And so Peter stands up in the middle of the crowd and he begins to lay it out, the whole thing. Jesus was the promised Messiah, but you killed him. There is salvation in no other name but Jesus. If These people who are speaking all of these strange languages are not filled with alcohol, they're filled with the Holy Ghost, and you can be too. And that first day, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people entered the church. Soon after this, Peter and John go to the temple to pray, and a beggar, a man who's been lame since birth, asks for money. But rather than giving him money, Peter heals the man, and the man goes off walking and leaping and praising God. This miracle causes a huge stir. It attracts the attention of the officials in the temple. They arrest Peter and John. They demand an explanation. They can find them guilty of no crime, but order them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And Peter says, there's nothing else we can do except bear witness to what we've seen and heard. And so then Peter and John return to the company of believers, and they report what's happened to them. And together, all of the believers pray for boldness in speaking the gospel because they knew that there would be opposition. And the house where they were praying was again shaken and everyone was filled with the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to our present passage this morning. There we read, Those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, this passage is not so much a report about a specific incident as it is a general description of what was going on in the church at that time. A little further down in the passage that we read this morning, we do hear about a parcel of real estate that was sold by Barnabas and contributed to the common fund. Next week, we're going to read about the story of Ananias and Sapphira who sell a piece of property but lie to the apostles about the money. You remember how that comes out. So these are specific cases of what seems to have been a general practice in the church at that time. Back in Acts chapter 2, for example, this is uh, 2 verse 42 we read, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. That's a familiar uh, verse that we often quote around here. But then just a little further down in that passage, we read, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds as any had need. Okay, So again, this is a general description of what's going on in the church in those early days. 
So when we learn about Barnabas selling a plot of land and giving the proceeds to the apostles, and when we learn, as we will next week, about Ananias and Sapphira selling a plot of land and, and lying to the apostles about the proceeds, what we're getting is a couple of specific incidents in what seems to have been the general practice of the church at that time in that place. Now, there is an Anabaptist group similar to the Amish that are called the Hooterites. They mostly live in Canada and in Montana. There are about 50,000 of them. And they use this description from Acts chapter 4 about the church sharing property as a model for their society. Okay, They're organized into colonies, uh, and each colony is, in fact, a corporation, and the corporation owns the land and all of the houses and the food and the income that are made in the colony are all shared according to the needs of individuals. There's, there's almost no private property. And they've done this based upon this description of what the church was doing in that early time. There are some who think that based on these descriptions of the early church that a Christian society should be communal, should be communist with no private property, that everything should be held in common. Some conclude from these descriptions of the early church that communism is the kind of economic or political system that Christians should favor. Maybe you've heard people say things like that. Well, let me say just briefly that that conclusion turns out to be mistaken for two in two different ways. And once we clear that away, then I want us to think about what the passage does teach us about how we should be Christians. The conclusion that Christians should organize into communist communal communities without private ownership of land and houses is mistaken. First, because while the church certainly did do that for some period of time in Jerusalem, never is there a command from Jesus or the apostles to do that. Barnabas didn't sell his property and lay the money at the feet of Peter because Peter told him to. He did it for another reason that we'll talk about in a minute. Secondly, we know from other places in the Acts of the Apostles that many Christians continued to own houses and properties. So what might have been a common practice uh, wasn't a, a universal practice. And never were those who did own houses faulted for doing so. Indeed, we know that a number of them were leaders in the church. So from the fact that some Christians during a certain period of history sold their property and shared the money with the church, we should not conclude that all Christians are under an obligation to do the same. You're free to do that, but you're not obliged to do that. In the same way that you know, even though some Christians wore sandals at a certain time in history, you're not obliged to wear sandals today, but you certainly are free to wear sandals today. So that's the text critical question. But there's another question here, and I think it has more to do, uh, it has more relevance for today, because it goes back to the question of the priority between faith and politics. Our key verse says, those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that anything of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. In this verse, we learn two separate things about the early Christian community. We learn that they were of one heart and one soul, 
And we learn that they held everything in common, that they, that they shared their property. The important question for us is, which comes first? Being of one heart and one soul, or having everything in common? Which was the priority? Oneness of heart, or oneness of property? Now, politics answers this question one way, and Christianity answers it in a different way. Marxism, out of which communism and socialism spring, says, let's make all property one so that class warfare and class divisions will stop. Marxism says, if you think it's important for people to be united and together and not at war with each with each other, then eliminate private property. Politics is about controlling external circumstances with the goal of helping people. If we adjust this policy, if we change this program, if we establish this government, then the people will flourish. That's what politics uh, strives for. But what Christianity says is actually the inverse Christianity says that when our hearts and our souls are united to Christ, then we'll share with each other. When we are united at a heart level, then our wealth will become united. Christianity says when we're right with God, we will also be right with each other. People looking for a political solution to the troubles of our country are perpetually disappointed. So can we talk about Paul and uh, about Barnabas for just a minute before we close? In verses 36 and 37, we meet Barnabas for the first time. We read, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, that's a great name, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now you all remember the name Barnabas. Honestly, I didn't remember that his his actual name was Joseph, which is not quite so as exciting as Barnabas. So we'll meet Barnabas again. He shows up quite a bit in, in Acts. He shows up next in um, chapter 9 after the conversion of Saul. It actually is Barnabas who introduces Saul to the apostles in Jerusalem and vouches for him. Uh, for this man who had once persecuted the church. Later, uh, Barnabas and John Mark, who we usually just call Mark, are going to join Paul on Paul's first missionary journey. The year is 44 AD, and the, these three men will head out from Antioch, and they're going to go first to Cyprus, uh, the island where uh, Barnabas was from. But here in Acts chapter 4, we see Barnabas in the very earliest days of the church selling land that belonged to him and contributing that wealth to the work of the church and contributing it to the well-being of other brothers and sisters in Christ. In some sense, Barnabas is being held up as an example here. Probably there were others who did the same thing. Ananias and Sapphira will be held up as an example of something else next week. It is our unity in Christ which allows us to be united as a church and as a community. And the closer that we draw to Christ, the closer that we draw to God, the closer we will be drawn to one another. 
This morning we have the privilege of gathering around this table, this table that was laid for us by Christ. We gather around this table as brothers and sisters, as equals in the sight of Christ, and we gather around this table because of what Jesus did for us and because of our response to his invitation to come to him. It's a symbol uh, of what God intends for us in our community, in our church, in our world, and it's a symbol of uh, the kingdom of God which is still out there in the future for us. As we gather at this table this morning, I pray that we would bring to the sacrifice of Christ that we remember all of the troubles of these past weeks and months. I pray that we would cast them uh, at the feet of our Savior who cares for us and loved us to the point that he was willing to die for us. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, for the beauty of this day, we do give you thanks. For the beauty of your word, we give you thanks. And for the beauty of your church, we give you thanks. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints. We thank you for those who are representing the larger body of Christ here in this room today. And Lord, I just pray that you would continue to unite us, heart and soul, one to another. May we be so united with one another that our lives just seem intermingled, that it becomes hard to distinguish what's mine and what's yours. I pray that we would love one another deeply. I pray that we would care for one another even as we care for ourselves. Lord God, I pray that you would help us, strengthen us during this time of trouble and time of stress. I pray that um, you would bear us up. I pray that you would bear the burdens of those who grieve this day. I pray that you would comfort those uh, who mourn this day. Lord, I pray that you would work through us to establish justice and your reign around us as a foretaste of the kingdom that is coming. Lord, I pray that you would be alive in our hearts and that you would be alive in this world. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This we pray in Jesus' name.